WMEX Quincy Boston, streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston. After fighting and coaching his way through a storied 47-year professional hockey career, Mike Melbury's gloves are again off for his next chapter as a radio host. Talking about the NHL, the Boston Bruins, and the hockey world at large. Brought to you by Catches Law. Since 1986, they've had the backs of every hardworking tradesman in New England who finds themselves injured on the work site. You pay nothing unless they win. So get your free consultation today at catcheslaw.com or by calling 508-321-7000. You're listening to Gloves Off Hockey with your host, Mike Milbury, and your friend Ben. Mike, it's been a wild week out there. But we are back, and we're ready to drop it down for the folks listening at home. How are you, first of all? Doing okay, Ben. You know, Bruins off another win, a good one, and they continue to roll along. And we're going to get started with a special guest. You can do the introduction. We sure are, and getting right into it, folks. I want to say thank you very much for joining us. Eastern Standard Time here all the way out in Colorado. Bennett Durando, he is the beat writer for the Denver Post, and he covers the Colorado Avalanche. He joins us here live on Gloves Off Hockey. Uh, Bennett, how are you, friend? I'm doing pretty good. How about you guys on the East Coast? Good, yeah. What's the weather like in Denver? I'm curious. It's uh, pretty beautiful right now. I mean, it, it, it fluctuates a little bit, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, it's like 45, 50 right now, really sunny still. We got our first snow of the fall uh, while I was in New York on, on uh, a roadie for the abs. But um, so it's, that, that's sort of creeping up on us now, but it's been pretty beautiful. Yeah, so you've um, you got to the abs how? Well, I uh, this this is my first NHL beat. Actually, I, I'm originally from St. Louis. Grew up watching a lot of hockey and all that. But I had covered college sports for the last few years, and um, sort of just you know one thing led to another from from covering college sports in the South to uh, hockey hockey in the mountains. So uh, here I am. I don't, that's a I don't good know. ride. It's yeah. a good gig yeah, to have with a, a team that's this good. I mean. They won it all last year. What What are your impressions of them as they've started out this season? They've had some bumps. Yeah, they have. It's uh, you know, and, and I don't think it's entirely surprising. It, it's the shortest off season in the league, obviously, and sort of a weird, bumpy schedule for the first month. They played back to backs four consecutive weeks. They were in Finland last week, so you know, it's sort of a little bit of an odd start in terms of that and now they're getting hit with the injury bug right about now so yeah tell me about that first it was gabriel landeskog and that was a pretty severe injury correct yes yeah he's uh and and jared bednar said just yesterday that there's not really a timeline yet on him but but sort of the early expectation with landeskog was he won't be back until probably second half of the season obviously what's most important is that he's back in the second half getting toward the playoffs but um that was sort of the early hit to their forward depth and then Valerie Nachushkin after seven goals in seven games to start the season uh wasn't skating in New Jersey 
a couple weeks ago. It seemed like sort of a you know mild, mild, bleh, sorry, mild lower body thing day to day, and it ended up being ankle surgery that he's having this week, and he's going to miss at least a month. Is sort of the prognosis on that. So, and he's become one of the he's become one of their go to guys, of course, right? Oh yeah, no, I mean he's he is so valuable, especially on the power play. They have started ten for twenty on the power play this season. He scored five of those goals, and I think they're something like three for fourteen, three for fifteen uh, in the last four games without him on the power play. So I mean that obviously that that's a huge loss for them for for the time being. It's sort of a situation, especially with that forward depth. They're calling up guys. They're now, they only had 17 skaters on the ice today because they Bowen Byram's also sort of a week-to-week thing. Um, they have to decide whether they want to go um, long-term with with someone like Landeskog or or if they you know sort of how they handle their cap right now. But it, it might be a situation where they're sort of treading water early in the season. I think especially with forward depth and you know the thing is they started four five and one last season and obviously it didn't end up being a problem it, it what matters is that everything sort of lines up at the right time so it you never want to be hit with all the injuries all at once but that's sort of what they're going to have to navigate through you know for these first couple months and then you know see what where they're at around the deadline i mean they seem to have when healthy i mean Byram's a very good player, and so is Gerard. They're they're part of what I would consider one of the top defenses in the National Hockey League. And uh, you lose those guys, and not only do you use their, lose their productivity, but you sort of lose the rhythm of that defensive game, which is so critical in a, in a couple of months. You, you think about the Avalanche's style and just sort of how you know they're they're quick pace and they're going to skate all over you. That, that I mean. Those defensemen are such a crucial part of that. Really strong offensive defensemen with both Byram and Gerard to the point where uh, they've gone with a three defenseman power play unit, their second power play unit uh, early in the Wow, I didn't that. know that. That's three defensemen. No kidding. Yeah. So they, and they actually, that unit scored its first goal um, against Columbus on, uh, I think it was last Friday, and it would have been. It, it was a Devon Taves shot that got tipped in by JT Comfer. If it hadn't been tipped in, if it had been a goal uh, to Taves, it would have been a goal for one defenseman with assists to the other two defensemen. It would have been Byram and Gerard with the assists, which would have been that wild. even it does, crazier. Yeah. That, it does speak to their skill level, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it absolutely does. And, so, and, I, you know, that they're sort of fiddling with, you know, how do you adjust around that now? Byram is so good. I He and, and Taves and McCarr are probably as, as not – I don't think anyone in the league is particularly close in terms of a top three defenders. And who would you consider to be their fourth? Uh, I mean, potentially Gerard. I, I like Gerard. Josh Manson's a solid player, too. Um, but I mean, like they have the depth. Eric Johnson's obviously a veteran guy, uh, longest tenured AV at this point. So, you know, I mean, they've they've got guys, and right now they're sort of trying to figure out how to fill the depth there because um, they've got guys like McDonald, and McDermott, a pair of players who can play forward or defense, and it's it's sort of going to be a matter of you know 
who they're scratching yeah. from the lineup on any given day. I think both of those guys could sort of fit as a third defensive pairing right now. But uh, well, they're certainly you know, they're certainly ready to compete again from a defensive defensive standpoint. Correct. And besides injuries, there's nothing in the way to keep them from being ranked as one of the top two, three, four. You make the number up yourself. Defense yeah. uh, pairings in the league. Yeah, no, I mean, 100%. It's funny, Taves was missed a couple games uh, in October, and you could sort of just tell how steady he is and just sort of how much the, you know, the control of the pace and the control of the game changes when he's on the ice and when he isn't, when he's not, you know, maybe quite as impactful on the scoreline as a guy like McCarr, and, you know, he's not compiling points. Just just sort of his presence on the ice is so crucial, and I think we sort of, saw that for a couple games when he was missing. But on the other hand, it was really exciting to watch Byram and McCarr work together as a pairing uh, just because, I mean, Byram's a guy who has sort of a McCarr-level ceiling, I think. He's still on his entry-level deal, and so, you know, that the sky's the limit with him. He's had the concussion history, and the good news for him this time is it's a lower body uh, injury that's going to keep him out for a few weeks. But... Uh, which you'd much rather it be that than than another head related issue. So that's right. You know that that's sort of just going to be the area where they're treading water a bit. The forward yeah. depth is really where they're making a lot more adjustments right now. Boys, that's got to be one of the only times I think I've ever heard somebody say, "Thankfully, it was a lower body injury and nothing worse." <laughs> that has got to be one of the first times uh, I've heard that. So tell me about their forwards um, right now with with. Landeskog out and now Nachushkin out. I mean, they they always look to McKinnon and Ranton and and Lakin and assess their play to date. Uh, McKinnon only has three goals, but he has been incredibly impactful. He looks really sharp with the puck. Uh, I don't think he has the league lead in assists anymore. I think Dreisaitl might have passed him, but he's got 16 assists. He had seven in those two games in Finland. Um, so I, his his impact is pretty you know, obvious right now and coming right off of the, the huge extension. Uh, it's sort of funny. I thought maybe, you know, is this right after the extension, is this the year where he wins an MVP? Obviously McDavid doesn't, doesn't seem like he's going to be stopped, but, um, but, you know, McKinnon still has that impact in his own way. It's, it's funny that he only has three goals. He's kind of a guy where it's, he's putting himself in so many scoring chances and, just hasn't quite finished on a lot of them so far, but uh, the impact is so obvious from him. And then, uh, you know, Lekkinen and Rantanen. Rantanen had a hat trick at, at home in, in Finland last week, which was a really cool moment for him. Uh, and then Lekkinen, another Finnish player, followed up with a goal 30 seconds into uh, the next game there. So sort of a cool homecoming for those guys. And, and sure enough, McKinnon assisted like three of those four goals. So, uh, yeah, obviously top heavy. It's they're they're really strong at the top there. But sort of the biggest question going into the season was what's going to be the long term answer for that second center position after you lose Kadri to Calgary. Um, and you know they messed with Alex Newhook a little bit there. Uh, the idea was sort of to give him a long leash. But I think right now what Bednar likes is a look with Newhook more at left wing and, and Evan Rodriguez, the new acquisition for Pittsburgh, playing center. He's been pretty impactful 
uh, with the first power play unit and then and then sort of making a difference between the first and second line so far. So I guess we're not going to cry any tears over their injury bug because they're still loaded with depth and skilled players. But um, you told me you were at the I – I think you mentioned you'd been in New York. Um, you were there for the game that Georgiev came back and played? Yeah, yeah. That I was, mean, it was, I a, it was a pretty – I mean, the background, I'll state it, the background was uh, Alex Georgiev was the backup in, in New York and really didn't feel that – he got the chance to be the number one. And so, you know, of course, the Avalanche won the cup with Darcy Kempfer in goal, and I think that that was the only per- perceived weakness that anybody had uh, with with the Avs, but they got through it and, and fairly easily. And and then in the offseason, Kempfer moves on, and they pick up Georgiev, who's been pretty darn good, hasn't he? Yeah. He, I mean, it's been... He has sort of inspired more confidence from the beginning than Kemper did when when he started here. I think, um, and that I mean that game at MSG was about as exciting and and suspenseful as an October game can feel. I think just you know two teams that were among the last four playing last season, and then the entire you know goalie narrative to it was. It's almost like too good to be true for just like a an early season game like that. And Georgiev had backed up Lungfist for uh, several years. You know, I, I talked to him about this sort of throughout that week before and after the game. And and Georgiev said, you know, I learned a lot from him. Um, sort of learned what it takes to be a starting goalie in the league. And and his sense was that he was sort of the heir apparent um, for all of those years. And then. Shesterkin sort of comes up the pipeline and and debuts, and Georgiev said that his feeling about it was the Rangers gave Shesterkin five or six games in goal after he came up and then decided that's what they were going to ride with. Well, you know, for good reason. Shesterkin's probably better goalie by a lot than, than Georgiev. But still, a chip on the shoulder for Georgiev. It was a thing where he sort of felt like he was going to be a starter in New York. Uh, he gets his chance with the abs. And, and again, it's a team that, you know, a little unorthodox, they're going to try and win with a style that requires them to pay less to a goalie. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think he felt okay with that. He just was ready for the opportunity to start and, you know, certainly took advantage of the chance in that game. He's been solid all around, but that was, that was really a special. Yeah. His reaction, his reaction at the end of the game was telling, wasn't it? It really was. Yeah. He was, I mean, it pretty poetic that it went to a shootout after all of that right I, for for it, he was at 44 uh, i'm trying to think certain was some 42 saves something like that but um it only seemed fitting that it would go that far and that uh that it would take another three saves in a shootout so uh he, he was extremely fired up he's he's sort of timid when you ask him about it but but I think he, everyone in that locker room understands what that game meant to him. And what about the backup? He's had a tough go, Francis. Hasn't won a game yeah. yet. Yeah, you know, he's sort of supposed to be, you know, all reliable as the backup here. Um, it's sort of been tough breaks. I, I, don't, I don't think he's been, like, atrocious by any means. Uh, so there have been some sort of bad breaks when he's been in net, but, you know, the – 
it's pretty clear just based on the record, the sort of direction between those two. And the thing is, I, when when the Avs got Georgiev, the thought was maybe you know is this could there be a tiny bit of a competition here? And really, there wasn't. Ednar sort of clarified that he was like, we got Georgiev to be our starter, and that that was that. But um, the understanding was that the two of those goalies were going to split every back-to-back this season, I thought, and then Georgiev played both games in Finland. So, you know, for him to be playing both legs of that is probably sort of telling in terms of how the Avs feel about that situation right now. How would you describe Jared Bednar's style? It's sort of a slow start for him as he took over the Avs, but it's just, it certainly reached a pinnacle. Yeah, he uh, he's, he's uh, sort of a player's coach. I mean, I think the guys really respect him in the room. It, it, he's sort of a guy who, he's always very, he's very mild-mannered and maybe a little bit wry with uh, reporters when we're talking to him. He, he sort of likes, he has a very dry sense of humor, but, but he gets really into it uh, when you watch them at practice, and he loves, uh, he, whenever he gets a chance, he's going to sort of, lead the team in a, you know, backhand shots kind of game at the end of a skate or whatever. So I, I think he's a guy that players sort of feel like they can consult and, and he's going to be pretty honest with guys. He, his first season here was, I mean, like the lowest of the low, I think that was the 42 point season. Um, and it's funny, the reason that we had, were initially talking was uh, about Peter McNabb. Bednar uh, just yesterday said that he sort of talked with Peter McNabb a lot during that season um, just sort of to get through, you know, what was clearly a tough time. And obviously that when that's your first season as coach, there's going to be a little bit of a leash. And there was an understanding at the time that, that Colorado was in a rebuild. So, it, you know, just, he sort of saw that through. And I, I think he's been a pretty instrumental part of this. He, they, he loves to experiment, and he sort of loves to go with his gut on things as the Avalanche have sort of dealed with their weird forward issues, especially in the back six early this season. It's almost like no two days are the same. Uh, you know, one day Martin Cout is fourth line, one day's the second line center. Like It's, it's sort of like Bednar is going to make his tweaks, and he's going to not necessarily – have a super thorough explanation for why he did it, but he's not afraid to try different things and sort of just see what works. I think he understands now that he can do that early in a season and, and he's going to get the results he wants. That's, I mean, the perfect example is what he's done with the second line so far. He sort of has landed on maybe Newhook at a wing spot, Evan Rodriguez at center, and then, you know, filling in with whatever Nachushkin's, uh replacement is, maybe a little bit of Martin Cout at right wing. Ooh, maybe. Uh, I, Jonah, let's, I uh, me, me, uh, just a couple more before I let you go. Um, se- surprises in the conference so far for you? Uh, a lot. I mean, the biggest one is the Blues, I think, so far. Um, On the negative side, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I, I, if you meant positive, uh, then I'd, I'd, <laughs> Good luck, Seattle right? maybe. Yeah, exactly. But, um, it, I mean, the, the league has just been weird as a whole right now. Uh, I St. Louis is really the one that stands out just because I mean, eight losses in a row. And that's a team that I think just back to the playoffs last season, that was the only team that 
gave the Avalanche a competitive series in the Western Conference. Um, and, you know, obviously it took a last-second goal in Game 6 just to avoid, you know, winner-take-all in that. It, it, it's just sort of stunning, and you know, the Kairos looked pretty bad for the Blues. So that that's really the... Yeah, that that, that you're right. They came in here and they did played an okay game, lost to the Bruins three one, but was they were they didn't look like they were into it. They didn't, and that was the that was the comment that Craig Berube had made that they the team wasn't playing with the same kind of competitive energy. And yet, you know, at the top, if you go to the other end of the conference, because St. Louis is dead last, nobody seems to be able to beat Vegas. They've, they've won eight in a row, and nobody seems right now to be able to beat Seattle who's won five in a row. Yeah, Seattle's the big surprise, and they've, uh, Burkowski's been an amazing acquisition for them, speaking of the Avalanche. Um, you know, a guy who got to sort of get his ring just when Seattle came to town. And it's funny now, I look back on that game, that was the maddest that Bednar has been this season, was after uh, the Az lost 3-2 at home to Seattle, their second straight home loss, and he was just really sort of ripping into, you know, Bad skating, weren't you know, just bad effort, pretty much. And but Seattle, I, I think, has just been sneaky good, and and everyone's starting to realize that now. Uh, so I, it, it's interesting to sort of watch them. I'm pretty sure the Avs were the last team that beat Vegas, right? Um, I think yeah, they've won every meant, game since that. Yeah, yeah I think was, they have. And and um, this is the last thing before I let you go. You got to know Peter McNabb, my buddy. The Long-time analyst for the Avs, 27 years, who passed away. Give us a quick idea of what your relationship was, was with him. When I got to Denver, I, I think he was the nicest person to me since I got to Denver. He, I, it takes one conversation with him to feel like you really know him well. And I, and I only got to know him toward the end of his life, which is which is very sad, but I feel really lucky that I did get to know him for that short time and that it feels like, and it, that it feels like, you know, he was sort of a friend in, in whatever little time there was. So he, and, but then you just see him interact with other people and that's how he is with everyone. Um, I was talking with uh, Vic Lombardi, who is a longtime Nuggets announcer here. Um, and he pointed out he sort of sees Peter McNabb as the father of Colorado hockey was sort of what he kept saying. And, and the way he sort of described it was when the avalanche came to town in 95, 96, that was also the first season that, that Peter McNabb arrived here after calling devil's games for eight seasons. And he, Peter McNabb was very willing to provide an elementary education of the game for the local community. And I think he understood that this was, you know, maybe not the (laughs) highest hockey IQ city at the time. And he felt sort of honored to be the person who could be that teacher uh, and was never going to be someone who was, you know, going to turn away from people who weren't, you know, he's not like the old guard in the way that, He's going to sort of turn his nose up at newcomers. He really wanted to grow the game. Uh, he's super enthusiastic about it. He, I mean, you know as well as me that he can just, if you sit down next to him, he can talk hockey for two hours uh, and 
you know, you're going to learn something from it every time. But sort of the way that he can, he can sort of have this kind way of educating you, whether you're a newcomer to the sport or even I've talked to players the last few days um, who were pretty shocked that they learned something about themselves from a little conversation at their stall with Peter McNabb over the years. So he, he had that way about him, super intelligent, super kind, super uh, just, just a good soul, honestly. And it, and it was really sort of sad. I think it hit the local community pretty hard to uh, lose him as soon as it did because his cancer had been in remission a few months ago. Well, Bennett, thank you very much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'm glad you ended with a Peter comments because I'm going to talk about my relationship with him in a little bit. He was a great longtime Bruin, and and uh, I'll reach back into the memory bank and talk some Peter McNabb when we come back. But you get on with the rest of your day, and uh, take care. We'll be in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, Mike. Oh. Absolutely, and uh, real quick, Bennett, before you go, the uh, Bruins and the Avalanche are going to be seeing a lot of each other December 3rd and December 2nd. We do a little bit of a home-and-away series, so hopefully uh, if you travel with the team in Boston, we'd love to see you in person. Hey, yeah, absolutely. I will be there. That's uh, that's a Buffalo-Boston-Philly roadie for uh, for the Avs, so I'll be in town for that. Excellent. Don't come looking for W's, but we're looking forward to seeing you. I'll be there. All right, Bennett, thank you very much. Bennett Durando of the Denver Post joining us here on Gloves Off Hockey with Mike Milbury. We are going to step aside, take our halftime break, and folks, we will be right back with more here on 1510 WMEX. Don't you touch that dial. Right back here on Gloves Off Hockey with your host, Mike Milbury, your friend Ben Rabinovitz here also with you. And we're talking some memory lane here. Mike, welcome back. And memories of a longtime friend, teammate, and colleague. We turn it back over to you. Yeah, we talked briefly with Bennett uh, about Peter McNabb. And you could see from his impressions that Peter was a special kind of a guy. You know, he, his dad, Max, played for the Detroit Red Wings, won a Stanley Cup. And Peter was born in Vancouver. But Pretty much grew up in in San Diego. I don't have a lot, not a lot of hockey rinks in San Diego, Ben. But somehow, he became a rink rat as well as a great baseball player. Got a scholarship to Denver University, and uh, but hockey became his passion, and he warmed his way into a key role on the Denver University's hockey team. Um, but remember, this is the early '70s, and NCAA players were few and far between paid attention to by NHL scouts, but somehow he managed to get the attention of the Buffalo Sabres, big, strong kid who could score goals. Even though the odds were stacked against him, they picked him in the sixth round. And this was a, this is a guy that wouldn't be denied. So he played on a pretty good Sabres team for a while. And then in a very good trade by Harry Sinden, he, Andre Savard was let go by the Bruins to, Buffalo Sabres for Peter, who joined the team in 1976. And that was the same year that I joined the team. I, I was, like him, not wanted very much, undrafted, but our coach was none other than Don Cherry, and everyone knew how Don Cherry liked his team. He he kind of liked the guys that spit nails and fought frequently. frequently. And, you know, it didn't seem that Peter would fit into this because it wasn't his style. He was more of a freewheeling forward. 
And, you know, Cherry's breakouts were dump it around the boards and let the forwards run into the defenseman and squeak it out. And his offensive theory was dump it into the zone and beat the crap out of their defenseman until we finally score a goal. But the thing about hockey is you got to score goals. And, uh, you know, Peter could score a ton. His first six years in Boston, he scored 38, 41, 35, 40, 37, and 36 goals. I mean, that talk about productivity. And on the team that wasn't built for skill or any of that stuff, um, played a lot with Terry O'Reilly. And uh, you know, the, the different styles were obvious right there. Grapes used to say, I have a team of pit bulls, except I have one golden retriever. And that was, that was Peter McNabb. What a compliment. Yeah. Um, when he arrived in Boston, just by chance, they put his locker next to mine. And for the next eight years, we sat beside each other and, you get ready for practice, you get ready for games, you get ready to go out to dinner afterwards, you talk about your family, you talk about your lives in general. We basically grew up together in, in those years in Boston and what years to be as successful as he was. He, he was. he was everybody's friend and confidant and you could see him huddle on the ice with O'Reilly working on plays, kind of like Marshawn and Bergeron do all the time. Nobody worked any harder than this guy and, and you know what? People thought he was soft, but I was in a bench-clearing brawl in Philadelphia with Peter on the ice, and Mel Bridgman played for Philadelphia. He tried to steal Peter's lunch, and Peter just went toe-to-toe to him with him for about two minutes. It was wow. an incredible show of you know, a guy that didn't like to fight, didn't really want to fight, but when the chips were down, and I certainly won't forget the night in Madison Square Garden when O'Reilly led a charge into the stands – I was sitting in the locker room, and when I got out there to the to the side of the arena, everybody was way up under the stands. And the guy that I saw furthest up in the stands was Peter McNabb, who was strong enough to have a Ranger fan sort of bent backward over a seat, and the fan was just kind of flailing around. And uh, that was the shoe thing, but that's a <laughs> that's different story. All he could story. do in that situation. Yeah. That was, that was <laughs> yeah. the best case scenario was to flail. And and then. He left in a trade to Vancouver, kicked around for a couple more years, never had the same productivity. And, you know, we, we talked from time to time. But those, those first years in Boston, cup final, we lose to Montreal. Cup final in the second year, we lose to Montreal. Cup final, semifinal. We were, we were seventh game, too many men on the ice. Everybody knows the story. He was a Bruins fan. And we should have won it. We just had a moment of stupidity. And it cost us all a ring. But those experiences are bonding. And then he moved on, and you could tell by what how Bennett described him, how he, how beloved he was, you know, the, the father of hockey or godfather of hockey, whatever he referenced him as, was a pretty good way to look at it because, you know, Denver hadn't had a professional team in, in, in the NHL, and they needed this kind of education. He gave it to them. And, but his passion about the game was so readily seen you could feel it I mean I could feel it all, all the time he played beside me he was studying statistics studying you know the the opponents and what kind of tendencies they had it was a it was it was great to be around him for his passion for the sport and he was great to be around to, because he was a friend to everybody and 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 then came to cancer um, you know we even shared that too because I had a bout with it a few years ago and was able to get treated for it early enough to take care of it. When Peter found out about his ailment, he was already stage four. 
Um, fought like a son of a gun right till the end. Broadcast almost right to the end. And I'll never forget, you know, the night the Avalanche won the Stanley Cup. Peter was broadcasting from ice level. And the captain of the Avalanche, Gabriel Landeskog, came over and put an arm around Peter and gave him a big hug. It was a touching moment. And I know Peter appreciated. We talked about it later. It was just, it just kind of summed up Peter's whole life in hockey. Absolutely. So that's my friend Peter. And, uh, you know, they're not going to do any special service for him, but I needed to say goodbye, Ben. Oh, absolutely. You know, to a friend, to a family member, to someone that you spend that much time with traveling the world and playing one of the greatest games on earth, you know, you got to be able to have that peace. And Mike, I'm glad that you were able to find that here tonight because I'm sure the rest of his friends, family, and colleagues, they appreciate that love just the same. And I'm reading through his uh, his bio here, just kind of going through his Wikipedia. And uh, I don't know if you even knew this, but his father was an NHL Stanley Cup champion with the Detroit Red Wings back yeah. in 1950, Max McNabb. I can only imagine. Yeah, no, I, I I thought I mentioned that earlier. If I didn't, I'm glad you did. But uh, yeah, he but Max went on to become a general manager throughout the minor professional league and then with the New Jersey Devils for some time. And his brother, Dave, was a longtime uh executive for the Anaheim Ducks. So 43 seasons as a yeah, scout and an executive. It's really yeah. something. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll get back to some some Bruins news and some not so good Bruins news and uh, and I'll look around the NHL cuz I think Bennett was right. It's kind of a topsy turvy league right now. Yeah, topsy part 1, 2 and 3, no doubt about it. And we will step aside take that break here on Gloves Off Hockey. You're listening to 1510 WMEX, and it's being brought to you by CatchesLaw.com. Catches Law. Since 1986, they have had the backs of every well hardworking said, tradesman in New England who finds themselves injured on the work site. You pay nothing unless they win. So get your free consultation today at CatchesLaw.com or by calling 508-321-7000. Right back at it here on WMEX, Gloves Off Hockey, your friend Ben, Mike Milbury here, and Russ Stevens hanging in the studio with us as well. Well, Mike, it has been one of those kinds of weeks for the Boston Bruins. They had all kinds of success, the world riding on our shoulders, and then the front office did what the front office does. So where do we even start? That's a good question. Um, You know... Apparently, the Bruins had been negotiating with Mitch Miller, who was uh, convicted as a juvenile of abusing a developmentally disabled yeah, black kid. It's yep. just it was a, it was a, there was nothing good about the story, um, and he had been continued to play hockey, but he he was drafted by Arizona, and Arizona found out about the story. And promptly dropped him, and uh, he continued to play uh, in minor circles and play very well. Um, and yet, you know, teams passed on him until last week. The Bruins, after several months apparently of of contemplating it, finally signed him to a contract. And we're not ever going to know the whole story here, right? No, we're never going to we're never going to get it, but. Um, they, they got more information, apparently, according to Cam Neely, after they signed him that was disturbing and to say the least, well, 
I don't know that they shouldn't have had it, though, Ben. I mean, the, the information wasn't secretive. The, the school had information. The police had information. Uh, the family of the victim had information. And I think the Bruins got sloppy. I think that that's a when – you, when you get a freebie like that on the free, free agent market, like it's, it's hard to say no, but this one deserved a lot more vetting, and they didn't do it. Um, I listen, I, I believe in second chances. I, I, I think everybody believes in second chances for most people. Um, and I don't know what happens to this kid and should he be, should he be kicked out of hockey for the rest of his life for this mistake? I don't know his family background, whether he got guidance from his own parents, whether his coaches were, you know, around enough to set him on the straight and narrow or apparently not. Yeah. But I, I, I know when the announcement was made, the league had said, you know, he's going to have to meet with Gary Bettman. Um, the Bruins had sought out Bill Daly uh, the week before they signed him, and Daly had suggested that, but he didn't, he didn't say that they couldn't sign him. Um, but the out, outpouring of alarm after the, the – the kid was signed was strong, so strong, including from Patrice Bergeron in the, in the locker room and other members of the Bruins team, that they were they were dead set against it. The fan base seemed to be dead set against it. The, the media was dead set against it, and it was just it had to get dealt with. And I, I you know, Cam is a friend of mine. I, I I like him a lot. I think he was, you know, took the heat. Um, talked about possibly disciplining some people in the organization, but um, they all need to take responsibility for this one. Um, and it's it's a sad case all around. But I will say that I would like what I would like to see come of this is a sit down with the commissioner with with the kid to see what help they can give them. I mean, the hockey community, as you know, is is a forgiving community, and 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 they're always got their hand out to help. So there's no reason for him not to do that. They need to make a plan to rectify the situation, and that means does he need to go to diversity training or what whatever it is that you need to go to these days? Does he need to find a way to educate himself? He needs to apologize properly. And this was kind of really kind of funky. Like for a while, he wasn't able to talk to the victim's family because he was prohibited by law from communicating directly with them. But I think he may have dropped the ball. Again, I'm not going to tell you that I know the whole story, but he may have dropped the ball by not getting to the family as quickly as he should have. And uh, anyway, they need to find a way to try to, to, to try to find a path forward for the kid's sake. You know, I don't think a 14-year-old should be condemned. And I and I and maybe there's more after he was 14 till the time he was 20. I don't know that. But uh, I have the same kind of take on that with you, Mike, because originally when the story broke, I was right there with you on that. I said, all right, well, people do silly things and often awful things in youth. And like you said, everyone deserves a second chance. But, you know, especially for me, I'm all about – Chances, education, growing, learning, that's good stuff right there. But the more information that came out and the more, not just opinion, but fact 
actual statements from the actual people as the days have gone on and even up to this afternoon every single thing i have read it just makes it worse and worse and worse to the point where now uh, originally where i was saying a second chance I don't know if there really is a second chance for something. When was the last time he was convicted of anything? When was the last time? When was the last time he was accused of something? I agree with you on that. Now that trial and that whole thing happened. He was what, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, somewhere in that ballpark there. But the real problem, at least that I personally found in all the information, was that there was a detailed track record going back to this first grade classroom. And I mean, I don't know very many people that have a track well, record. Somebody else had to the drop the back. ball here. If this kid was being that abusive in the first grade, some teacher didn't do their job. Somebody didn't get it right. That's somebody. for sure. Yeah, I, I don't mean, know. along the way, he wasn't getting any guidance. And, and clearly, I mean, this well, was the biggest, horrible. The biggest part for me came today, actually, Mike. And you may or may not have read this particular bit, but the actual kid that was being bullied made an actual statement. He wrote it out in plain black and white English, perfect. And the whole subnote, you can, you know, folks can find it online, you can read it for yourself, but the whole paragraph can be summed up as follows. Mitch is not my friend. He's never been my friend. He's made my youth and my life a living hell. And if anybody wants to know, he's still not my friend. Please stop making me relive this. And that's the essential cliff notes of the whole thing. And it's like, well... Came right from the dude. I mean, who else more yeah, qualified well, listen, to say? He was he was the victim, and he should be bitter. Uh, it doesn't stop me from saying that you know you don't throw the life away. Oh, absolutely. It's, really, it's just it's a matter of trying to give a kid, even if you don't give him a second chance in the league, a second chance at a life. Right now, I mean, he after this situation yeah. with the Bruins, he's in an even deeper hole. Well, it gets even worse because they signed the contract. The contract is good. So he's now protected by the NHLPA. He's got rights as a player. And uh, now there's all kinds of issues coming from that because even though the Bruins terminated the contract, well, the old uh, CBA has something to say about yeah, that. Yeah, they, they can't do that right now, Ben. They, right. I mean, if they've signed so, them to a contract, they're going to have to make a f- – what, th- what probably will happen is they'll have to come to some sort of settlement. Yeah, they're and, uh, probably just going to have to pay him to stay home for the season or something. Because I can't imagine. I mean, Mike, you tell me. We'll we'll take a break and we'll cover this in a minute. But in your, you know, let's put you in that situation for a moment and say, are you going to really walk into that locker room knowing every single guy, staff member, and coach is looking at you funny because of this whole situation? How do you even walk in the room to play hockey at that point? Is my question. Well, they, like I said, I, I think they need to find out if there's a path forward. There's a path forward to certainly rehabilitating the kid and re-educating him, hopefully, that he's not, you know, a genetically formed human being of, of ill will. I mean, I don't know. It's a hell of a way to put it. I like that. So I, I but anyway, um, it, he's got a lot of things stacked against him, but it's up to the hockey community to see if they want to give him a path forward. We'll see how that plays itself out. Well said. And it's in the books. We're closing that chapter on it, folks. We'll tune in with you on the second half of that. We are going to take our final break of the evening. When we come back, we're going to break down the Bruins this last week. Take a look ahead. we got the Flames coming up, and uh, we've got a heck of a matchup tonight for you in the NHL. So we will be right back. Thank you very much for listening to Gloves Off Hockey with Mike Milbury. And don't you touch that dial, folks. Right back in the saddle here on WMEX with Gloves Off Hockey with Mike Millery. Being brought to you by Ketchis Law. 
Check them out online at catcheslaw.com. Well, Mike, we've got a lot going on in the league tonight, and one of the bigger rivalries that's been for the last, ooh, I don't know, 15, 20 years, Sid the Kid and O.V., the Great Eight, going head-to-head tonight in Washington, and they're both tied with 1,423 overall all-time points together. This is going to be a barn burner. Well, is it? Uh, sure, you know, sure you're so. always going to love watching Crosby and Ovechkin go head-to-head. But I think it may have been the closing of the window for Washington this year. I don't know if, if they're going to get guys back. They have so many people injured. Wilson, uh, Oshie's out again. Backstrom, I don't know if he's ever going to play but um, you know, or even get close to normal. And Pittsburgh, which re-signed Malkin and Latang and got the old gang back together, is not playing very well. And uh, so – it's getting to be kind of the quarter pole, 20 games, about eight or seven or eight games more is when you start to say, okay, this team is what it is. This Both of these teams have to get on a little bit of a run here before the 20-game mark to get out of this before they're buried uh, as we head into the, the second quarter of the season. So it, it will be interesting with these two guys, but it's it's the game used to be two premium teams. You can't say that right now. Right, no, those premium players is really what the league seems to focus on. Well, nowadays. yeah, now, now one of the premium players is the New Jersey Devils. They've won seven straight, and they're 9-1 in their last 10 games. They're second in the conference. Nobody saw that coming. Or, or that Jesper Bratt would have like 18 points at this stage of the season. Seriously. They, they won in Calgary the other night, and uh, we'll talk about Calgary. That was their sixth straight loss, but he sure got the game winner and the two Top picks, he along with Jack Hughes, starting to produce, and even Dougie Hamilton. Remember him from a, seems like a lifetime ago. Is Dougie playing Fresh, well. and they're and they're still missing missing Andre Pilat, who's a was a really good addition. Little can I don't know how good their goaltending is. We'll see as th- time develops, but I thought Mackenzie Blackwood should be the number one. But it looks like Vanacek um, came over from Washington. It looks like he might be the guy. And who's the third team in the conference? Don't look, Ben. Who is it? Oh, goodness, off the top of my head, I don't even know anymore. No, it's the <laughs> Islanders. Ah, oh, there it is. And be, what, for a while there, there was like, this was, where were they going? I mean, they came out of the gate. Remember last year, they had that 13-game road trip. The whole season fell apart with COVID issues, with injuries. They fired Barry Trotz at the end of the year and bring in Lane Lambert. And now it looks like they got it together. They have, you know, Nelson Barzell, who's got... No, no goals, but fifteen assists, which is a little odd. But that is a little out there. The guy, the guy can scoot, and Anders Lee can score goals. Good depth players, you know, Matt Martin, uh, Josh Bailey, Cal Clutterbuck. They're kind of nasty kind of guys that can make your life miserable. But another team with a question mark and goal. I don't know this Sorokin very well. He looks to be their number one. Semyon Varlamov is like could be my grandfather at this point. Seriously, but, right? Uh, I mean, he's been around for such a long time, you kind of forgot about him, but he's still hanging tough in there. But I don't know, uh, those goaltenders. Well, and then you expect Carolina to be near the top of the heap, and they are. They played a few less games, but here's another surprise for you. Detroit's in the fifth hole of the conference standings. And we're talking conference because that's where you're going to get your playoff readings. And, and you know, I don't know how they're doing it. They've got Kubelik, who's had a good start. Larkin's had a good start. And the rest of them are like 
a ragtag group. Uh, Billy Uso, their goaltender, played in St. Louis last year, had a good record. guess they had to let him go because Bennington was coming back and on a big contract. But they're working hard, getting good goaltending, getting good coaching, and all of a sudden you're seeing teams like Tampa Bay is like in the eighth spot, and the Rangers can't get it going. Flo- I, I thought the Rangers were going to – they put Chris Kreider on the fourth line. Uh, that was a head scratcher. Florida underachieving here. You know, these teams are in the mix now with a team like Buffalo. So it, it is uh, – in the early going, the, some younger teams have uh, reared their heads and declared themselves, you know, capable of doing some 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 damage. In the other conference, of course, you got Las Vegas, who, who won again in Toronto last night on – OT, baby. Uh, yeah, an OT goal. Jack Eichel played like he's – you know, he should when he's injury-free, like a, an elite player and – you know, the goaltending was supposed to be a weak spot, but, you know, Logan Thompson is good. Aiden Hill, 5-0. and I mean, it's just uh, they're giving up just two goals a game, and that, there's a reason why. And, of course, Bennett mentioned it. Seattle is in, you know, they're in second place in the conference. Where, where did that come from? I don't know. A 5-1 stomping of the Predators last night uh, at home in Seattle. That was uh, surely emphatic about it, I'll tell you that. Okay, so where are we with this this Bruins team anyway? Where do you think we're at? None none of the the game, the, you know, the game is to score goals, and the Bruins do it have done it better than any t- team in the league. They're tied with Edmonton, fifty three goals, and and that's just over four a game. And it was at five goals a game, but they decided to play a little defense. Thank goodness. Power play, you know, that was looking a little shaky. But it's up to seventh in the league, and it's, there's too much talent. I mean, the two goals they got against St. Louis were things of beauty, and they followed principles of power play play. The first one was they lost the puck deep in the St. Louis zone, but they fought like hell to get it back. DeBrusque and Marchand were in the corner and outbattled St. Louis, and Marchand is as good and tight as anybody. You know, he uses his his small stature to good effect in the corners. Was managed to managed to pick up the puck after the turnover, zip it cross ice to Pasternak, who was who got it on the back end, couldn't make a play with it. But DeBrusque beat his check out of the corner to the front of the net, and Pasternak delivered him a slam dunk. I mean, so you, if you lose the puck on the power play. Go back and get it. Don't wait to go 200 feet to retrieve it. Put pressure on the puck carrier to make sure you've got a chance to make him turn it over. Saves you a lot of time and a lot of energy by not having to go back and try to re-enter. And and the second goal was the one that you know you see all the time with Marchand and Bergeron. I mean, Ber- Ber- Bergeron was in his bumper spot, and people don't know that language. Just in the middle of the two circles, and you know, Marshan is on the half wall, which is just halfway up the ice between the goal line and the blue line. And he picked up a rebound from a, a shot by Krejci that just drifted over to him and a, made a beautiful saucer pass. And now left shot to right shot in that situation is not easy for Bergeron to pick up. He's got to turn, he's got to collect a puck, which was lifted just perfectly over a defender's stick, turn his hips and get something on it, which he does immediately and scores the go-ahead and eventual game-winning goal. I mean, this is what you want for your from your power play. And, and you know, McAvoy's not even on the ice yet, which he I think he's he's getting close. But they have two good power play units now. Yep. I mean, that, that is a – it's nice to know. So you checked off goal scoring and you've checked it off in the power 
play department, um, you've, you made a couple of good strides. Um, defensive end, we saw some struggles, you know, early. We talked about them sort of giving up maybe the wide open stuff, but um, they rank fifth in the league in goal, goal against average. Their, their plus minus goals for goals against is 22, and that's tops in the league. And that's a good indicator of team play. And, and penalty killing, they're the best in the National Hockey League, 93%. I mean, that's that's better. I mean, that's damn good. Um, You know, I read it. (laughs) I read an article in the media clips about a problem. They're minus two as a team in the second period. But, you know, who cares if you're plus 22 overall and goals for goals against the rest of the way? I was just going to say, what's the third period plus? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good enough to put them where they are. And, you know, Part of that goals against stuff comes from the goaltending, and we've talked about we've talked about the goaltender Olmark repeatedly. And I, I just wanted to point out one thing here: the again, yet again, uh, when the score was tied at one-one, Cairo got a breakaway in the second period. It was all alone from I don't know how it developed from from the centerized dot all the way in. Had plenty of time to make it, and Olmark stoned him. Now that's a that's a goal that gives a bench a boost that's a goal that you know saves people from embarrassment when they're on the race giving up the penalty uh, a virtual penalty shot like that and he's got everything going for him now square to the puck vision is good uh making those timely stops he's got nine wins in his first 10 starts and that puts him in pretty good company with guys like Cheevers and Tuka Rask and I mean it's it's a it's a hell of a start for this guy. The only loss they had was in Toronto 2-1, and that was by far, I thought, Toronto's best game. That I thought that was going to turn them around. They bumped up and down a little, but they looked to have figured it out against the Bruins in that particular pretty good hockey game. Yeah, even a broken clock is right twice a day, Mike. Don't forget, all right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, what are we looking at here? We got much time left, Ben? We got about two minutes, and I do want to ask you a very specific question because the NHL dropped all these reverse retro jerseys, which personally I'm all in favor of. But there was one head scratcher that I said, I got to ask Mike about this one. Philadelphia Flyers busted out the old Cooperalls. How do you feel about oh, those? Well, I, I think they should take the Pooh Bear jersey and throw it in the Charles River myself. I'm, <laughs> I'm totally against it. I saw some lime green jersey that was just awful. It's a, I don't think we need it. I mean, once in a I suppose, one or two games, but the Cooperalls, yikes. People hated them when they first came in. They hated it. The players that wore them hated them. I got to tell you, the photos they took of the uh, Flyers, the locker room on the ice, I just didn't see a genuine smile about any of this. Yeah. And it looked so out of place. Yeah. Uh, well, you keep that to yourself. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so point. who's next for the Bruins? It's Calgary, right? They come to town tomorrow night. Indeed they uh, do. Uh, and what a summer it's been for Calgary. They they lost Johnny Hockey Goudreau to Columbus to free agency and Tuchuk wanted to get traded and they shipped him out to Florida, but from that dark place, the general manager Brad Tree Living seemed to emerge into the into the light. I mean, he made a pretty good trade to pick up some good players from Florida and Huberto and Wegar, and uh, you know, it looked 
when he picked up Nazem Kadri, it looked like that was a missing piece to the puzzle and could get him right back to being legitimate contenders. Uh, and they flew out of the gate. I mean, they just roared out of the gate and had people's tongues wagging like this is going to be a fire wagon type of hockey team is going to score a ton of goals. And they're now on a six-game losing streak. Go figure. I, I mean, <laughs> they need they need to score some goals. They're out chancing everybody, uh, but they're not putting the puck in the back of the net. And isn't that the name of the game, Ben? Sure is. Where mama hides the cookies. Top shelf, ideally on the left. Mike, thank you as always. And folks, if you want to catch up on any past episodes or stay current, don't forget to check out the podcast at WMEXBoston.com. Mike, you have a great week. Go Bees, and we'll catch up with you next time. You got it, Ben. Right here on 1510 WMEX. Gloves Off Hockey been sponsored by Catches Law. Check them out online at catcheslaw.com. It's on 1510 WMEX.